0: I'm going to start off with a controversial introduction. I'll find out later whether it was a good idea. I was listening to a uh, comedian this week who was making light about the way we turn weddings into these super fanciful affairs. See, the problem is some of you may have had a really big wedding and I don't want you to feel criticized in, in any way. But you have to admit, it is kind of funny the way we turn weddings into these almost like royal events. You know, and so it's important for us to spend lots of money so the bride can pretend that she's a princess (laughs) and marrying her her prince, and they live happily ever after. And it's almost as if they they said, well, you know, we love each other, and why don't we pretend we have a kingdom? (laughs) And your realm will marry with my realm, and we'll have a grand feast to celebrate it, and then we'll go on a completely unjustified vacation afterwards. (laughs) And so these enormous amounts of money... Uh, Are often spent. Now, of course, it's one of the great highlights of life, and I'm not uh, being critical of any of you for whatever. I don't want to know what you spent. You don't need to know what we spent, but there's some truth into the humor of that, isn't it? And I mention those things because in the story we are tonight, we have Nabal and Abigail and David. David, who's been so insulted, David, the future king, insulted by this man, Nabal. And we're going to see tonight that Nabal is going to pretend to be like a king before God strikes him dead. And then the story ends with a real royal wedding. The story of David and Nabal teaches us the wisdom of waiting as we pursue God's kingdom plan. Chapters 24, 25, 26 are all stories about how David spared the life of people who were worthy of being uh, corrected, at the very least, When other people thought that David should take their life, but David learns to wait and to not wreak vengeance himself, but to leave it in God's hands. In this chapter, he almost fails the test, but he responds to Abigail, who comes like woman wisdom, speaking wisdom to him in the street. Let me review for you briefly what we've seen in this story. The the opening three verses sort of are a great stage that is set. It starts off with something that seems totally unrelated, and that's the death of Samuel, the great prophet. And it seems like for a moment there's this time of national unity as everyone gathers to mourn Samuel. But it seems that with Samuel's passing that there's now a void, a leadership void. And uh, the opposition to David doesn't stop, it in fact gets worse. We're then introduced to Nabal's family business, how he's a very wealthy man who lives in the uh, lower part of, of Judah. Uh, he's a man with almost fairy tale like capacities and wealth and uh, things, but we're also told that he is a very crooked man, a very foolish man, married to, unequally yoked to a beautiful, wise an intelligent woman named Abigail and then the story itself unfolds it's a long story and we you want to take notice of this when you're reading the stories of the Old Testament when the storyteller slows down he wants you to catch things there's a reason why this story isn't told in 12 verses instead there's 40 so this long story is unfolded first about David seeking repayment for his men who had been out in the sheepfolds months before They never got any reimbursement for the security that they provided for Nabal's shepherd industry. He sends a crew to see about, even just a token repayment, and they are rebuffed, they're rebuked, they're disgraced. Nabal is despicable in the way that he deals with them. Uh, Abigail can see trouble brewing, and we saw last week how she wisely intervened, sent gifts on ahead, and spoke calmly and prudently to David appealing to his better side that he needed to leave this matter in God's hands and it ends with David verse 35 David rejoicing that the Lord had used her to stop him from committing a sin David goes back into the wilderness and Abigail goes back home so now we come to the portion that the end of the chapter which is about a couple matters. It starts off with God's surprise vindication. The way God vindicates David is not what anybody would have expected. So I'd like us to read at this point, verse 36 to verse 39. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things. And his heart died within him, so that he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. And we'll pause at that point in the verse. God's surprise vindication. Uh, We see Nabal's folly judged in the verses we just read. And it starts off with this fool's feast. In verse 36. Nabal comes back home, we, we read it, and there's a feast in the house, and it's it's not just a you know, not just the celebration about the sheep shearing time that they were all accustomed to. I mean, he has gone overboard. He is pretending to be a little potentate. as having this royal style feast, and I can almost see the chicken bones being thrown behind his back and all the, the sort of extravagance and all the wine, and the alcohol, and of course it we're twice told about how drunk he is. Heart was merry within him. He was very drunk. Uh, You know, the the one problem with Nabal doing this, of course, the excess of the alcohol is, is a huge problem, but there's only one real king in this story, and it is not Nabal. He is pretending to be something he's not, maybe wishing himself to be something that he is not we get the impression that he rules his family business and the uh, hundreds of people who are likely under him, probably with an iron fist, with no regard for their needs, let alone their wants. He has set himself up as a little monarch. Nabal has no idea that his wife has pledged her loyalty to David. In the verses we read last Sunday, That's one thing that Abigail does. She recognizes that he is the Lord's anointed and she prays a blessing upon him and says the Lord is going to hold you close and keep you safe and he's going to hurl your enemies out like a stone. Nabal has no idea what's been going on and he chooses not to believe what he ought to about David. She's come home from this meeting and finds Nabal wasted and feasting like a fool. The uh, Hebrew text says, that, uh, well, our translation has Nabal's heart was merry within him, and that's a fine translation. The, the Hebrew text is literally, and the heart of Nabal was good upon him. This is a standard way of saying something like this, but note that the only good thing that can be said about Nabal is how he felt when he was drunk. That's the extent of his goodness. And he did those things that only felt good to him. Abigail came home with a blessing of peace from David. The last thing that David had said to her um, in verse 35, go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. She comes home with a blessing of peace, but Nabal is not in a position to enjoy peace, certainly not peace from God. And what happens to Nabal is going to prove the truth of the prophecy that Isaiah would give centuries later words like Isaiah 48:22 there is no peace says the Lord for the wicked one thing i think we can take away from even just this first verse we're reading is it is it is foolish for us to pretend that we are sovereigns over life to think that we have king like prerogatives and, of course, the more wealth we have and the more means we have and the more authority we have, the, more, the greater the temptation to think of ourselves much more highly than we ought. Nabal is very much like the rich man that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 12. You fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. And yet, at this fool's feast, we also see Abigail showing her wisdom again. She knows, unfortunately, by experience, how to navigate around her drunken husband. She knows this is not the right time. Who knows what he would do? She had, really, what was good news to share with him, but that good news has behind it so much bad backstory, it'll be something that even Nabal, when he's sober, he can't handle. So come with me now to verse 37 where we see Nabal stone sober. Hmm. But in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal his wife told him these things and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. In the first part of the verse there's a little bit of humor that is lost in translation. It says when the wine had gone out of Nabal now I shared with you last week and the week before, that this name, Nabal, is uh, actually connected with a number of different words. And, and I, I proposed to you the idea that when his parents named him Nabal, they weren't thinking fool, though there is a word that sounds like that, that means fool. They were probably thinking something like noble or sent one, or there's various theories as to what the name could have meant. There is another word used elsewhere in this chapter that rhymes with this one, it's the word for wineskin, it's pronounced nebel, instead of n-a-b-a-l, it's n-e-b-e-l, and it's from the same root, it's used back in verse 18, in fact, Uh, not connected to Nabal necessarily, but back in verse 18, Abigail hurried, took 200 loaves of bread and two nebel of wine, Wine wineskins. So here's, the, here's the, the pun back here in verse 37. Uh, when you empty out a, you know, pour wine to drink, you empty out the Nebel. And here it says the wine had gone out of the Nabal. It's almost like he's, uh, the only thing he is is he's a big wineskin himself. Nabal had emptied plenty of Nebels the night before. And now it was his turn to empty out, sobering up and doing all the things uh, physically that need to be done to do that. And I think the pun implies that Nabal is really just an empty shell of a man. And you know, that is what folly makes of us. It it, it makes us bloated and empty. Uh, One of the things that the Apostle Paul warns about in Philippians is that we not pursue vain glory, empty glory. It suggests being puffed up, when, but there's no substance in it. That's Nabal. Folly, like this, self-centered foolishness, doesn't just make us fools, it makes us tools, and useless ones at that. But it's not just the wine that's gone out of Nabal. We're, said, we're told that his heart died within him. Now, uh, the author is not a modern physician, so he didn't give us a modern prognosis, but it could well be this is something like a stroke that he has that results in paralysis. He's shocked by the news, so shocked his body physiologically goes into shock. That morning when he's waking up now, shaking off the effects of all of that drinking, He, if it had not been for his wife, he would have been dead that morning by the hand of David, as well as all of the servants who did not deserve the sort of death that David was thinking of. He woke up to realize that he and his whole estate had almost been exterminated, and it rattles his world. He becomes, we're told, like a stone. That suggests paralysis, but I I think the author has chosen this word to match up with the prophecy that Abigail had given back in verse 29. Do you remember this back in verse 29? Uh, Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies, he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Uh, if my understanding of this picturesque language is right, the idea is that the Lord is going to keep you close, like bundled up into the pocket of his garment, close to himself. But your enemies, they're going to be put in a sling. and f- Now, what do you put in slings? <laughs> Stones. And so I think the author of this story has chosen the word stone to describe Nabal here to show how what he is experiencing is in part a fulfillment of the words of his wife. Nabalt is about to be slung out like a stone. This is what happens to him for opposing God's Messiah. David is, uh, I'll use English spelling to keep it clear in mind, David is a small-m messiah an anointed one. And uh, Nabal has made himself into an antichrist. David was not authorized to do anything about the indignity that Nabal had given to him, but he leaves it in God's hands. And I tell you, it is a fearsome, it's a terribly foolish thing to oppose God's Messiah. And how much worse is it to reject and oppose God's ultimate Messiah, capital M, Jesus the Christ. Oh, this is a time of mercy and grace. It's a time for us to call men and women and children to salvation. But you know, the day of grace is going to close, and there will be a time of reckoning. It's like what the Apostle Paul said at the end of one of his letters to the Corinthians, If anyone does not love our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. It is a foolish thing to oppose God's Messiah. It's like in Psalm 2 where David says, the kings of the earth uh, assemble themselves together, set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed and say, let's cast off their cords from among us. And he, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He shall have them in derision. Well, we come now to verse 38 and we see the divine execution. Short verse, verse 38, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Nowadays, I'm sure physicians would say that he died from complications of what happened 10 days earlier. But note here that the Lord is listed as the active cause of death. That makes it clear, by the way, to anyone reading the story back in days of old, that it was not Abigail who did him in. It was not David who did him in. It was the Lord himself. It's unpopular, you know, to think of God as the taker of life. We sing about how he's the giver of life. And Scripture makes much of that, but Scripture also teaches he is the taker of life. The Scripture is very clear about it. What did Job say after suffering even the loss of beloved family members? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Ten days he waited, sitting there like a stone. Why did God wait ten days? Can't be for certain. The text doesn't say. It is interesting that the only other thing that's counted out to be ten in this story is the number of servants that David first sent to Nabal. Ten men insulted, disgraced, sent on their way. Maybe those each of those days corresponds to each of those men. God took vengeance on Nabal in a righteous way, more righteously than David ever could have. David did not need to sink down to low methods of vengeance to get hold of the throne which lay before him in a couple years. It would be by God's intervention. And it's the wisdom that David learns, the vindication he experienced here that helps him in chapter 26, verse 10, which we'll be looking at in the weeks to come. Verse 10 of chapter 26, David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, where again he has a chance to kill Saul. It seemed like he'd learned that lesson in chapter 24, but presented with another opportunity where Nabal is not the Lord's anointed. He's tempted to act in his own strength, but he's taught the value of waiting for God's vindication. And so note with me now in verse 39, David's patience is rewarded. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. David heard, and we don't know how, Uh, did Abigail send word? We don't know. I'm sure it was the talk of the region. And upon hearing the news, David blesses Yahweh. This is the second time that David has blessed the Lord. He did it back in verse 32 uh, when Abigail reasoned with him, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discernment. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed, from avenging myself by my own hand. But David here is not gloating. He is boasting in God. It was wise. It was right. God could be trusted with this. God does a much better job of vindicating our shame than we ever can. David has two joy over two things, actually, here in verse 39. One is God's justice, and the other is God's restraint. As for God's justice... He says he rejoices that God took up his cause. And that word cause is actually a legal word. It means something, sometimes it means something like court case. He has, as one translation puts it, has argued the case of my insult from Nabal. Of course, the outcome of this case was stark, the verdict And the judgment was death to Nabal. It's hard to say this, but it was actually a cause for joy for a lot of people. Isn't it terrible that someone's death is good news? And I don't mean the death of Jesus, which is good news in a very unexpected way. I mean, the death that it's good news. Death is always a sobering thing, but sometimes there's actually a joy that certain people are no longer afflicting the world. Nabal was a powerful, selfish, self-serving, abusive leader who, as we saw at the end, fashioned himself as a little king. His passing was actually a great relief for the kingdom. Commentator Harry Hoffner said, It may sound callous, but I rather suspect that many people blessed Yahweh that day for the death of Nabal the fool. How many others had he treated as he had treated David? David. So David is glad for God's justice. You know, God's justice is always a cause for joy. Now, it can be also a cause for sober reflection, but every act of justice that God executes is to his glory. The judgment of God results in the glory of God. Now, we love to celebrate how the grace of God magnifies the glory of God, and it does. But even his judgment, he has glorified in it. Now, there's something else that David's glad about, and that's God's restraint. It, It says here, he says in this verse that he rejoices that God had, he blesses God for keeping back his servant from evil, meaning keeping me from sinning this is the same kind of language that David uses in a psalm and I'd, I'd like you to keep your spot here in first Samuel and turn to Psalm 19 Psalm 19 in this portion David is celebrating the different ways that God has revealed himself he's revealed his glory in creation And he's revealed his very self in his word. And as David reflects on the different ways that God has made known his glory and his grace, he responds at the end of the psalm with a prayer. Would you note with me in verse 11 that for the first time David starts to talk to God, not just about him, but to him. Verse 11, moreover, by them, your word, your words, by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? The implication is none of us can fully know all the sins we commit. So he says then, acquit me of hidden faults. To paraphrase that, forgive me, Lord, for the sins I commit that I'm not even aware of. It's a great sensitivity to sin he has. And in David's day, those sins included all sorts of ceremonial observances which were really impossible to stay on top of. They went beyond that to issues of his heart and his life. So there's sins I don't know I've committed and I need God's grace to forgive me. But then look at 13. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be it should be innocent of great transgression. Not only forgive me for the things I've done, but God, keep me from committing great sins. I, I, it's wonderful to be forgiven, but it's better to be innocent. And back in our story in 1 Samuel 25, David has been spared the guilt and the shame he would have experienced had he taken matters into his own hands. You know, we need to have this kind of sensitivity to sin like the psalm talks about. We need both kinds of graces operating in our Christian life. We need to seek cleansing and restoration with the Lord when we have fallen short and failed and to know that his arms are open to us because Christ has paid the price. But we also need to seek power to be free from sin. We need to pray that Lord, the Lord would keep us from committing stupid sins, that our flesh not overpower us. And David here, 1 Samuel 25, rejoices that in this moment the Lord kept him from a, what would have been a grievous sin. The verse ends, verse 39, ends with him rejoicing in God's vindication again, how he had brought the, he had returned the evil doing on his head, which is a... An expression about the I guess we could call it the boomerang of judgment you know when people are committing evil and that uh, the the effect of that comes back and hits them on the head whenever this phrase is used it always describes people who experience physical death as a judgment what a reversal of fortunes has happened with Nabal I mean David has been living out in the bush for months, maybe years. Nabal has been acting like a king, and now everything is turned around. And I want you to turn back to 1 Samuel 2 because what Hannah prayed in her great prayer prophesies about this kind of thing. Now, I'm not saying that Hannah prophesied about this event, but this event we've been studying fits into the pattern of Hannah's prayer. Hannah, who is rejoicing that God had answered her prayer and vindicated her and given her a child after many years of praying and waiting. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly, do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire, those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He has set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Overtones of what she said resonate very profoundly at the end of this story so we've seen God's surprise vindication the last portion of this story verses 30 the end of verse 39 through verse 44 are David's complicated success and I say complicated because we read some things at the end of the chapter and we as Bible believing people we scratch our head and think now is that okay is that the way that should have gone So let's look at the end of verse 39. The very last sentence says, Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. She arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidens who attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Uh, David had also taken Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both became his wives. Now Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who is from Galim. This is a strange ending, isn't it? Uh, well, his, David is having success, but it's a complicated success. We see Abigail's royal remarriage in the end of verse 39. David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as wife. I mean, David was impressed with Abigail. It's a beautiful, wise woman, now newly widowed, liberated from her abusive spouse. She had pledged loyalty to David as her king. And now he makes her the offer that she can become his queen. What an unexpected turn of events. We are a little uncomfortable with this if we remember what's happened earlier in the book because David is a married man, isn't he? Saul had given him his daughter, Michal. It's mentioned at the end of this chapter. We're uncomfortable with David's polygamy just as we're uncomfortable with Abraham's polygamy and Jacob's polygamy and others like that. I'm going to come back to that issue at verse 43, but for now, I want us to think about some positives to note from this complicated story. In terms of procedure, it's a good thing that David doesn't steal her. He doesn't treat her the way he does Bathsheba later on. She's free to marry spiritually Abigail is going to prove to be an asset to David she's not a detriment like McCall who still had household idols politically marrying Abigail is a smart move because she is part of the Calebite family we saw back in verse 3 the Calebites were a very strong clan within Judah in fact the Calebites run the city of Hebron where David will first sit as king Some have wondered whether or not David was fulfilling the role of a kinsman redeemer. Like, you know, when a relative dies and another relative can, to keep the wife from becoming destitute if she has not had children in particular, that he can become a sort of a surrogate husband. It's hard to say, David would be a pretty distant relative. Um, But uh, whatever the situation, the background, this is still a little unusual. now, look at this romantic story. It's, uh, and I say that jokingly because it's not all that romantic. Uh, when the uh, when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us to you to take us as his wife. So this is a proxy proposal delivered by messengers. You know, when you, we tell the stories about how we got engaged, you know, it, we, it's usually this long, drawn-out tale and... I took her to this place and I bought her this and I, she knew it was coming or she didn't know it was coming but this is you know uh, messengers <laughs> David wants you to marry him <laughs> now it doesn't sound that romantic but remember it's not like they're being set up on a blind date for life I mean they, they know each other there's some awareness and look at her quick response in verse 41 she arose bowed her face to the ground and said behold your maidservant and this is key that word your right there is singular so these are the words that they are to give back to david she's calling she's speaking to david i am your maidservant and i am as a maid to wash the feet of my lord's servants and my lord here refers to david she had referred to him as my lord several times earlier in the chapter small l This is the message they'll take back. And she delivers, this is a backwards way of saying yes, in case you're wondering. Uh, and, and she displays it, this, passes this on with a powerful display of humility, calls herself a maidservant. I mean, this is the, the, a, a lowly house servant who washes feet. You know, most people just wash their own feet. You know, I know there's the custom of when a visitor comes, you wash their feet. But, you know, day to day, you just wash your own feet. <laughs> and and you certainly don't have a queen do this. Uh, so, let me say right away, men, you're not supposed to read this verse and think, oh, this sounds like a great job description for my wife. Don't you want to be like Abigail, <laughs> dear wife? No honored queen would ever do work like this. She is overstating her her humility. she. But one thing this does reveal, and this is, is important, she sees her role with David as serving the kingdom, not ruling in it. Yes, being married to David will mean she may become queen, but she doesn't see herself as becoming something like Queen Victoria. She doesn't see herself as becoming, oh, what's the great pharaoh, the lady pharaoh... Uh, Cleopatra, that's right. Yeah, that's not what she aspires to. Uh, and in verse 42, uh, there's this proxy proposal and a quick wedding in verse 42. Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidens. Now, they're, they're not on the donkey altogether. Uh, they're, they're, they're walking behind, mind you. Five maidens, literally five women at her feet. So they're following behind her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. She is quick to change life. I mean, this is a massive life change, and she is fast to get... It doesn't mean she left in 10 minutes, but she got things ready right away. This is the fourth time in this chapter we're told she does something quickly. Now, you think about Nabal. Nabal gets these messengers from David, and what are we told at the end of verse 9? And they waited (laughs) you know while Nabal stews up insults to get rid of them she's exactly the opposite of him she rides the donkey which it was something of a uh, the the honor position as it were and uh, her maid servants she's a wealthy woman they follow behind on foot presumably they're all going to be part of the royal house these will become servants within David's house She is a woman of high social status. We feel conflicted, though, again, about David's polygamy, and I I am going to talk about that. But there is a display of faith here on Abigail's part that we ought not miss. Abigail is joining with David. It shows that she fully believes in his future what God has called him to be, what God has anointed him to be. Even though at the moment, David doesn't look like a king. I mean, where is David living? He's out in the bush. He's been hiding in caves for who knows how long. Boy, we're really living it up. David doesn't have a place to call home at this point. She is joining up with him in faith that God will do what he's promised to do. You know, I think about our Lord Jesus in the days of His flesh. He told would-be disciples, Matthew 8, 20, you know, foxes of the ground have dens, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to put His head. Now, the Son of Man has had a glorious future ahead of Him, so He was looking for disciples who believed what the future would be, that God would fulfill the plan, even though it seems so unpromising for so long. We follow after Jesus as our Savior and King, even though we don't see things right now under His feet, as the book of Hebrews says. Hebrews quotes from Psalm 8 and says, you know, God put all things under man's feet, and Jesus is the ultimate man, and we, we don't see it. I mean, you can drive out of here tonight and see things that don't seem to be underneath Jesus' control. Don't seem to be. We are disciples living by faith that there is a glorious kingdom to come in its fullness. We don't yet see things fully under his sway, but we have faith in what he will do, what he will do when he comes back, when he comes back in the fullness of glory. And that is the prophet said, every eye shall see him, and the earth shall be full of the glory of the Lord. It's that kind of hope that keeps us going for Christ when things seem to be going the other way. Well, with this quick wedding, David is now connected with a powerful clan, the Calebites. And through this means, God is preparing to launch David into governance within a couple years. Look with me at the last couple verses, David's growing family. These last two verses are almost like an appendix. Even the way the Hebrew text is written is a little bit off the main line. It's as if, and here's some other interesting things to fill in some details, provide some background information. It turns out that David had gained two wives, but he'd also lost one. Two wives are gained, we're told in verse 43. David had also taken Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both became his wives. What this verse suggests is before chapter 25, sometime before, David had picked up another wife from the town of Jezreel. Now, there's a Jezreel up in the north that's more famous, but the book of Joshua lists Jezreel down in the south, a small village somewhere in Judah. So now David has two wives from families in Judah. One of them, at least, is very powerful This will help him establish his governance when he moves to Hebron. Unlike David's marriage to Abigail, which was beneficial, spiritually beneficial, his union with Ahinoam would be more complicated. Now there's very little said about their married life, really nothing said about their married life, except her one son, her infamous son, Amnon who would be famous for horrifically abusing his half-sister, Tamar. And David's failure to discipline him is the spark that lights the rebellion by Absalom, 2 Samuel 13 to 15. And this sorry tale illustrates a truth that is repeatedly found in the Old Testament that wherever there is polygamy, even amongst God's people, there is trouble. On the one hand, God worked through these marriages, and through these people, God regards these marriages as legitimate. They are real marriages. They are to be honored as real marriages. On the other hand, it's clearly a deviation from the divine plan set out in the beginning, isn't it? We don't like reading about David's polygamy, uh, I mean, he wasn't as bad as his son, Solomon, with hundreds of partners. But obviously what David is doing, even though he has a smaller number of spouses, it is not according to the divine plan of Genesis 1 and 2, where God brings together one man and one woman to become one flesh. We talked a couple weeks ago about how, as you read through Genesis, you see, even in Genesis, early Genesis, the corruption of the family. Another thing that this does not fit with is the law of kings laid out in the, in the book of Moses. And uh, look with me quickly, I'll not take long, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 17. Uh, Deuteronomy is the speeches of Moses in the last two months of his life. And he's preparing the nation for what's going to come. And one of the things that, that uh, Moses foresees is that they will have a king eventually. Which you Deuteronomy 17 verse 14 when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses one from among your countrymen you shall set his king over yourselves you may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not of your countrymen moreover he shall not multiply horses for himself that is make a big cavalry Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself, and more instructions are given. Uh, Particularly the kind of marriage that this is going after is the political alliances where you marry the you know, the daughter of Pharaoh, and you marry the daughter of the king of Tyre, and whatever, and you create these political alliances. But David, even though he's marrying within Israel, is is rubbing up against this commandment. God seems to have permitted polygamy in the Old Testament, partly because of the corruption of human society. And part of that corruption was the exceedingly poor way that widows were so often treated, that it was better for a woman to remarry, even into a multiple partner marriage, than to be left out on her own. But it's unmistakable that even when God uh, permits this, and God even blesses unions like Jacob has two wives, and he blesses both of those wives, it's unmistakable that problems are created. You know, we think of David as a type of Christ, and he is in many ways, but not in this way. The Hebrews, people who knew the law, when they would hear this part of David's success, it would be tinged with, eh, clearly he's the Lord's chosen one. This isn't the right way, though, for things to go forward. David was a Messiah, but his shortcomings left the remnant of the nation hungering for the greater Messiah. Thank God we have a perfect king in Jesus, a sinless one who has perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. One last verse, one last point. David's first wife was lost. Verse 44 says, Now Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to T, the son of Laish, who is from Galim. I suppose you could say in defense of David marrying these other women is he he wasn't married anymore. Saul had illegally initiated a divorce. Uh, Verse 44, I think, happens even before. Verse 43, before David married Ahinoam and Abigail, he was married to Michal, Saul's daughter. The last time Michal was mentioned was a long time ago, chapter 19, when she helped David escape, lied to help him escape. Somewhere along the line, Saul does a dirty trick on David. McCall had stayed back in the capital city where Saul was, and Saul uses her as a pawn. He, who knows how he does this in an illegal way, he gives away his daughter to marry somebody else. We don't know anything about him other than his name is Paul T. He's from the city of Galim, which is a few miles away from Jerusalem. This decision on Saul's part has nothing to do with her happiness. He maybe justified it by telling Paul T that David was dead. Uh, some have noted that the beginning of this chapter has Samuel being ce- has his life being celebrated after he has died, and at the end of the chapter we have Saul acting as if acting as if David is dead. I think Saul's motive was to hurt David, who had loved Michal. In fact, when David comes back to the throne, comes to the throne, he will steal her back. But he also wants to disinherit David because by being married into Saul's family, he's actually in line of succession to the throne. So by giving a daughter to someone else. He hopes to break away those claims of dynasty. This sad last verse prepares us for the reality that Saul is not converted. Remember back in 24, Saul had, uh, it seems like he came to his senses and said, you're right, David, you're God's chosen, you're going to reign. And Saul goes home and David goes to the bush and then there's Samuel's funeral and maybe they're all together, uh, but his, this old enemy is still out to get him and we're going to see it in the next chapter. This story of David and Nabal is teaching us the wisdom of waiting, waiting as we pursue God's kingdom plan. He's learning, David is, to wait for God to do what he can't, to do what he shouldn't. And so we are taught to be people who wait on God. You know, one of the great things that the gospel does is it makes us a people of hope. Hope requires waiting. We walk in faith with hope in what God's promises will be in light of what he's done already and what he's promised to do. And so may we be faithful and wait and not force things, particularly acting out of our flesh, but trust in Him to make all wrongs right. Our God, we thank you for the time we've had in this long chapter to meditate on your ways, your plan, and the wisdom of waiting. And while we are not Davids, we are nonetheless your children, and we have a place in the kingdom to come. So may we, with hope and faith and patience, wait on you to do your good and perfect work. Help us wait in the short term in this life as we wait answers to prayer, as we wait for you to sovereignly work out details. Help us to wait for the next life and to know that in that life to come, there is the fulfillment of all the joys and expectations, and many things not seen in this life will be known in unending abundance in your presence. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.